how often do we use an expression having no clue as to its source? I mean, someone will say, hey, I heard that you quit your job. Yeah, yeah, I saw the handwriting on the wall. We know what's meant, but hardly anyone responds, oh, you've been reading the book of Daniel, have you? <laughs> well, that's what we're doing here at UPC. We're in a sermon series where we're reading the book of Daniel. It's a fascinating book. Did you know that Daniel is actually a bilingual book? As pastor of global ministries here at UPC, working with people who often speak multiple languages, that excites me. The entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for a section of Daniel that's written in Aramaic from chapter 2, verse 4b, through chapter 7, verse 28. Aramaic, that's one of the languages that Jesus spoke. Um, it's the language he uses on the cross when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The chapter that we're looking at today, Daniel chapter 5, is written entirely in Aramaic. Now, one reason I love this story is that it's one where people get what they deserve. And this doesn't always happen in real life, right? In real life, villains rarely get what they deserve, it seems. No, in real life, villains often terrorize innocent civilians. They lead large corporations into breaking laws. They run drug cartels with apparent impunity. But in the book of Daniel, they get eaten by lions and swiftly punished for their sins. And you know, if I'm being honest, I have to admit that I like that. I love to see justice done swiftly because it seems to me that in real life, we rarely see that happen. I think that's why the, the Clint Eastwood character, Dirty Harry, was so popular. I mean, there's no doubt who's guilty in that movie. And Dirty Harry directly administers justice. It's so satisfying to see the bad guys get what they deserve. Well, back to our story in Daniel. King Belshazzar has thrown a lavish party, and under the influence of the wine, he gets an idea. He orders gold vessels that were stolen from the Jewish temple to be brought to him. And he, he then drinks wine from these sacred vessels in order to mock the Jews, makes fun of their God, and instead praises the, God, uh, the gods of gold and silver. Immediately, a giant hand begins writing in large letters on the wall. And Belshazzar's mocking, arrogant manner melts away at the sight of, one, of what one commentator calls God's graffiti. He calls all of his counselors to read the writing on the wall, and they can't make any sense of it. Uh, their predicament is best described by a line sung by the rock group Rush. Uh, it goes, an ounce of perception, a pound of obscure. They have no idea how to interpret this writing. The queen then says, 
O king, go call the Jew Daniel. He's good at reading dreams and, and figuring out weird things. So Daniel is brought into the banquet hall and told that if he interprets the writing on the wall, he'll be rewarded with fine clothes, gold, and a cushy government position. Before he reads and interprets and gives his interpretation, Daniel launches into this unbelievable tirade against Belshazzar. He reminds them that when his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, got too big for his britches, he was judged harshly. However, Nebuchadnezzar repented of his sins and God restored him to his position. As for Belshazzar, Daniel tells him, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from the sacred vessels of Israel. Daniel then reads the Aramaic words written by the mysterious hand of God. And we'll put those words up on the screen here. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. So all three words represent weights of currency. Um, mene signifies a coin called a mina. Tekel is an Aramaic spelling of shekel. And parson refers to two half mina. So if we use modern terms, uh, it would read a half dollar, a penny, and two bits. But they may also be read as the verbs to number, to weigh, and to divide. So the message is translated something like this. God says that time is up for you and your arrogance. God has weighed you. Your days are numbered. Your rule has been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom will be divided in two. So even though Daniel speaks truth to power, and we might expect this to end badly for him, Belshazzar surprisingly keeps his part of the bargain. He gives Daniel the promised new wardrobe, gold chain, and a plum government position. And that very night... Belshazzar was killed. I mean, that's the nice thing about this part of the Bible. You don't have to wait long for these divine judgments. <laughs> I mean, the good, Daniel, get a new suit and job and a gold chain. The bad, Belshazzar, gets judged, a victim of the handwriting on the wall. The major difference in Daniel between chapters 4 and 5 is that in response to the king in Daniel chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar ultimately repents of his arrogance. He's restored to his former position. In Daniel 5, Belshazzar does not repent, and he's destroyed. This story reminds us of the serious nature of sin. Now, the language of sin has been largely abandoned in our society. As David Brooks notes, the word sin is now mostly used in reference to desert. But God is a God of perfect justice because he's holy. Do we realize what that means? You know, the writer Annie Dillard, she thinks church people in worship are often like children who think they're playing around with a play chemistry set 
but who are actually mixing up a bunch of TNT. She argues, it is madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to worship. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Have you ever noticed that most of you here in this sanctuary, you're actually sitting on furniture that's bolted to the floor? You know, uh, Aslan, the, the, the great lion and messianic figure in the Chronicles of Narnia? He's good, but he's not safe. When we come to church, are we truly ready to meet the holy living God who hates sin? That's why it's so important to confess our sins in worship services. It's serious business. That's also why the assurance of pardon is key. We need that reminder of God's forgiveness too. The confession of sins, assurance of pardon, they're absolutely critical whenever we come to worship God. So let's return to Daniel. The imagery of this text in Daniel made me wonder if there were other biblical texts that mention the finger of God. So I searched the Old Testament and I was struck by two passages. In Exodus chapter 31, it states, when God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And in Exodus chapter 9, one of the plagues that God unleashes on the Egyptians is turning the dust of the earth into gnats throughout the whole land. And Pharaoh's magicians, who are unable to reproduce this phenomenon, tell him, this is the finger of God. Isn't that interesting? God's finger brings the law and judgment. The New Testament story that caught my eye is the story of the woman caught in adultery found in John chapter 8. I'm going to read that for you now. Uh, it's on page 870 if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles. John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teach her. This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. 
Well, you might say that after being caught in the act of adultery, this woman can see the writing on the wall because the penalty for this sin is death by stoning. But there's something wrong with this picture. I like what uh, William Sloan Coffin said about the situation. Uh, the phrase, a woman caught in adultery, is truly stunning because if a woman was caught, most certainly there was also a man caught. You can no more catch one person in adultery than you can catch one person playing tennis or chess. I mean, the law of Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it does make it clear that both the man and the woman committing adultery are to be put to death. But where is the man? Furthermore, how in the world did these authorities manage to catch this couple in the very act of adultery? I mean, it's clear that, this, that neither this woman nor the law is the real focus of concern. That's why John notes that they said this to trick and trap Jesus. Jesus here is put between a rock and a hard place. It seems that he'll have to either go against the law of God or against Roman law. If he says not to stone her, then he's going against the law of Moses and therefore he'd be a false prophet. But if he says to stone her, then he's going to get in trouble with the Romans who forbade capital punishment. And also he would lose his uh, popularity with the multitudes since he had a reputation for showing mercy to sinners. It seems to be a no-win situation for Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this test? Well, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. A lot of commentators have wondered what he could have been writing. Uh, some suggest that he simply doodles to contain his anger. Some think he may have been writing words of scripture, uh, perhaps the Ten Commandments. According to several later manuscripts, Jesus wrote on the ground the sins of each of them. One commentator even speculates that he's writing the names of certain members of the present company who had been her bedmates in the past. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote, but we know what Jesus did. Notice that he first bends down. Francis Gensch states, by lowering himself physically and refusing to stand with them, Jesus offers a visible sign of disengagement. And then Jesus is silent. He refuses to answer the mob, though he stays his ground to protect the woman. By his silence, Jesus takes the focus away from the vulnerable woman and puts it on himself. The accusers don't like his silence and they keep pressing him for an answer. So Jesus finally provides a verbal response. Let anyone among you who is without sin cast the first stone. And once again, he bends down and writes on the ground. Notice how his words again shift the focus away from this woman, away from himself to the crowd that stands around her. And to the crowd's credit, 
they do go away, beginning with the oldest. That makes sense. I, I, the older we get, the more aware we become of our sins. At any rate, we don't know what Jesus was writing on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. But perhaps we can borrow a page from the Jewish tradition and engage in some creative interpretation. Rabbis call this interpretation midrash. You take a text and you fill in the gaps. Now, there's a clear difference between scripture and midrash. Uh, scripture is always higher, right? But midrash can be a fun exercise. So here's my midrash of John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. What could Jesus have written? I think he might have written something like this. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Jesus is fully God and fully human. So he's the same God whose finger appeared to King Belshazzar and produced the original writing on the wall. In John chapter 8, he uses his finger to do the same thing, only he writes on the ground instead of on the wall. Wouldn't it be wild if Jesus wrote the exact same thing that was written on the wall in the book of Daniel? Only this time, I'd imagine those words referring to those seeking to entrap him at the expense of this woman. It would be a way of pointing to their own sin and would go along with Jesus saying to them, let anyone among you without sin cast the first stone. Or these same words could also, could, uh, also refer more broadly to the power of sin and death. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Sin and death. The time is up for you and your kingdom. God has weighed you. Your days are numbered and your rule has been weighed and found wanting and your kingdom will be divided. Jesus could be foreshadowing the impact of his death and resurrection on the powers of evil. When the finger of God writes on the wall in Daniel, it's all about judgment. If Jesus did write these same words of judgment on the ground, what would be the biggest difference? Well, when you write in the dirt, the writing doesn't last. It can easily be erased. The God who wrote on the wall with permanent marker in Daniel is the same God incarnate in Jesus who wrote words on the ground that can be wiped away. The same God who showed mercy to Nebuchadnezzar and the woman caught in adultery. The words of judgment have been wiped away by Jesus on the cross. And although we'll never know for sure whether or not the words on the wall in Daniel and on the ground in John were actually the same words, the point is, God is the same. No matter what we've done, our, our sins are real and serious, but because of Jesus Christ, it's as if our sins have been written in dirt. They can be wiped away. All we have to do is lay hold of the grace and forgiveness from God. It's been said, God forgives us all of our sins, but does not leave us in our sins. 
But because God loves us, God leads us out of our sins. God loves us just the way we are, but God never leaves us just the way we are because he loves us. Let's return to the incident of the woman caught in adultery. After her accusers drop their stones and leave, Jesus speaks to this woman who has been left alone with him. This woman thought she saw the writing on the wall. She was indeed guilty of the sin of adultery, even though she knew she had been used and tricked. And now she was facing death by stoning. Whereas Jesus had been put between a rock and a hard place, the good news for this woman is that she had been put between the rock of salvation and a hard place. And the rock of salvation was able to save her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Francis Gensch writes, Though at the story's beginning, she was a condemned woman, surrounded and threatened by violence, at its end, she finds herself a free woman, free to go and amend her ways. She is not to be imprisoned by her past, for the one before her refuses to let the guilt of sin define us and directs us toward an open future. Jesus invites us to do the same today. Have you ever felt condemned by others? Or, or perhaps you've even condemned yourself. Jesus asks us to look around and see that he set us free from condemnation and the power of sin. Jesus, the rock of our salvation, has set us free to go and not have sin overtake our lives anymore. The writing on the wall has been replaced by the writing on the ground, words of judgment that can be erased. All we need to do is accept the gift of forgiveness and pardon. I encourage you to do so today. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are both a God of holy justice and a God of gracious mercy. I pray that we would all see the handwriting on the wall because we're all guilty of sin. But I also pray that each one of us would remember that your actions on the cross mean that the words of judgment are not the last words for us. The last words are words of forgiveness, mercy, reconciliation, and restoration. They are the words of eternal life. And all we have to do is to lay hold of your grace and love. May we all do so through Christ our Lord. Amen.